0: Welcome back to the Para Sports Nutrition Podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today I have with me an absolute legend in her sport and an absolute legend of an individual and I'm super excited to have this conversation with her. I want to introduce to you Erin Popovich. Erin is a Paralympic swimmer, ex Paralympic swimmer. Sorry, she retired a while ago. She was a three time Paralympian, 14 gold medals, numerous other medals, two SBs, and she currently is the director of US para swimming, working for the US Olympic and Paralympic committees. So, welcome to the podcast, Erin. Thanks, Liz. It's great to be here. Uh, Well, it's taken a while to track you down because you're such a busy person, which is some of the stuff that we're going to talk about. But can you tell us first about your background, your impairment, and how you got into swimming?
1: Sure. So I'm Aaron Popovich. I am a 14-time Paralympic gold medalist, five-time silver medalist. I have short stature, um, so I compete in the short stature division of Paralympic swimming I was born with achondroplasia. It's one of the most common forms of dwarfism, but it's also one of over 200 forms of dwarfism within the world. I grew up in Montana, which is not the swimming metropolis of the world, but uh, grew up playing every sport known to man, mostly through the school system, and then we were an avid soccer family with my brother and sister The rest of my family is average height, so I am the only one with short stature, but we had a lot of fun growing up, playing all the sports. And around the age of puberty, um, so in my early teens, is when we started noticing the biggest discrepancies in how I was able to participate in soccer. Mm -hmm. And so for a few years, I stayed back a year and competed with some younger athletes and then the, the age difference became too much. So I was looking for a new sport. Some friends of mm-hmm. mine through school said that they were on a swim team. I was actually afraid of the water. Uh, so I took <laughs> the opportunity to learn how to swim and went to the, the one swim team in Butte, Montana, the Butte Tarpon swim team, mm-hmm. talked to the coaches there and said, I'd love to try out for the swim team. What do I need to do? Jumped in the water, swam, doggy paddle the whole way down, and the rest is history.
0: <laughs> they went, mm, "We've got some 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 work to do here." <laughs> yes, a lot of work to do. <laughs> um,
1: and, and it was about. So,
0: how old were you then?
1: Uh, I was twelve. Hmm. So I was twelve years old. I was in seventh grade. Prior to that, I had due to being when I was a child, um, had tubes in my ears and one of the tubes failed and I lost a good portion of my eardrum. So it mm. was in when I turned 12 that they were able to do surgery on that ear and I was able to get it repaired. And so then I was able to be more active in the water. So that's when mm-hmm. I went to the swim team. And I remember the coach saying, you've got some potential, but let's figure out something more than doggy paddle. And so... <laughs> We started off with the local swim meets through USA Swimming around Montana, and then it was probably about three or four months later that my coach approached my mom and I and said, hey, there's this USA Swimming Disability Championships in Minneapolis this summer. Would you have any interest in it? You've made some qualifying times for it. And at the time, my mom and I had no idea what this meant, but (laughs) hey, I was young. I wanted a trip to... Minneapolis to see what the world would be. And so I took the opportunity to to go there and, and see what I could do.
0: And so how did Minneapolis go?
1: It went well. You know, it was my first experience ever with Paralympic swimming. So I'd never competed with any athletes with disabilities before. So it was pretty eye opening mm-hmm. to walk out onto a pool deck. One, the facility is an incredible facility. I'd never been in, in a 50 meter long course facility with a full dive well and everything else so i was pretty awestruck by that but then you know being on the pool deck and seeing wheelchairs and prosthetic limbs and all of that was was an eye-opening experience that i had never really understood and one of the things i remember you know as is, is we first walked out onto the pool deck and i'm scared out of my wit's end because i have no <laughs> idea what i'm doing i remember my mom asking me are you seeing everything that's happening and i was kind of like yeah mom there's this team in the water and they're really fast and she goes yeah but are you really are you really seeing what's happening and i was like mom i'm watching a swim team and then she he goes well where do you think the owners of those wheelchairs and prosthetic limbs are and i was like i have no idea this is this is interesting And then it was all of a sudden like that light bulb moment that the people I was Mm. watching in the pool were the owners to those wheelchairs and prosthetic limbs. And so Mm. it was one of those aha moments that I remember being like, oh, my goodness, I have to compete against these people. What am I doing? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And so it was, you know, a 12 year old brain figuring life out and, you know, never Mm. having had any exposure really at all to any impairments or disabilities. And then getting thrown into a pool full full of disabilities. So <laughs> it was pretty exciting to see. Yeah. And the meet was a very big learning experience in the fact that I, you know, I never competed at a meet of that level. Mm-hmm. I had a lot to learn. And, you know, we we kind of just went with it. I had a great coach. That kind of helped me through it and my mom was there to navigate it and Mm -hmm. you know the on my 13th birthday i made my first world championship team Mm.
0: wow how fast was that
1: it's crazy to think back from the time i i think i joined the swim team in october of 1997 and then on june 29th of 98 i made my first world championship team so
0: Yeah. And two years later, you made your first Paralympic team.
1: Yes. So (laughs) absolutely crazy. My first world championships was in New Zealand. And so that really kind of lit the bug to that. I, Mm -hmm. you know, this was something awesome and I could travel the world and I could compete. And, you know, I'd always been a competitive person, you know, growing up with siblings, Mm -hmm. we were always competitive. But that really felt like, I found a place for me where I could have impact and it wasn't, uh, oh, let's help, you know, the dwarf out. It was, Mm. oh, she's here to compete and and I have value here.
0: Mm. Awesome. And so what was your classification when you were a swimmer and did that change over the period of time that you were competing? Yeah. So I
1: started out is uh, S6, SB5, SM6. So for swimming, we have three classifications, the S for freestyle, backstroke, and butterfly, the SB for breaststroke, and then the SM for the individual medley. Um, <laughs> throughout my 12 years of competing, I had two other classification changes. So for short stature within Paralympic swimming, if you have achondroplasia, the main kind of requirement that they look at is your height. And so Mm -hmm. when I was 12 or 13 years old, I was, and even after Sid, up until Sydney, I was under the 130 centimeter height requirement for females. And then after Sydney, I had my legs straightened because they were bowed. And so for medical and health reasons, I had surgery to straighten them. And that, Mm -hmm. along with Puberty and my awesome growth spurt of, you know, one or two centimeters put me over the height limit for the S6 Mm -hmm. classification. And so I moved to the S7 classification. And so at that time, I was a 767. And then they changed the rule for breaststroke and the dwarfs would be straight across. So 777 was my classification from 2002 to when I retired in 2010.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Cool. And what was your favorite stroke and the one that you had the most success in? I really
1: loved Butterfly, at least as a sprint stroke. Um, mm-hmm. So in the beginning, I would say of my career, I really enjoyed it. I, it, it kind of just meshed well and I didn't have a lot of struggles with it. But then as time went on, I grew to enjoy more of the, the 200 IM for the strategy along with the, the 400 free because there's mm-hmm. just more strategy and you could pace it out as opposed to the just get off the blocks and go.
0: Mm. And so you learned all of those strokes are in a relatively short period of time, going from doggy paddle to being able to do every stroke in the pool pretty much evenly well.
1: Freestyle and butterfly were definitely my stronger points.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Brushstroke took a lot more time to develop and backstroke I still struggle to this day with, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, the, the freestyle and butterfly really came on pretty quick, which was, was fun to see. And then I feel like brushstroke just has evolved over time and different that I feel like is one that you can play a lot with technique and and really make some big changes that have big impact.
0: Mm. And so your first games at age what are we talking? 15? Fifteen? Fifteen. First Paralympic game. Yeah. How was that? It was awesome. I was, I think, the
1: second youngest athlete on the delegation for Team USA Mm -hmm. in Sydney. And it was just so much fun. We'd watched the Olympics growing up and, you know, saw that on the world stage. But to be there in person, I had the opportunity to walk in the opening ceremony in Sydney. And the short stature got awesome placement in that they were right behind the flag bearers walking in so that we could see of course Ah, yeah but it was so incredible to walk into a stadium of I think that sat 110,000 people so Mm. nearly three times the size of my hometown and so to walk through the tunnel and, and it's this amazing feeling of being able to walk through a tunnel and you can start feeling the vibrations of of the crowd and, and the yelling and the cheering and then be able to walk out into the stadium of that many people. You know, yes, I know we're in Australia, but it felt like we had all of the people cheering for Team USA. And so that was really an incredible experience. And I'm so glad that I got to do that. And then I'd never ever competed on a stage like that. I think the the aquatic mm. center held I believe 18,000 people and to hear the roar of the crowd regardless of if it was a US swimmer or of course an Aussie was something that I'd never experienced before nor could I really put into words just how electrifying that was mm. and to swim in front of a crowd of that big was just wow, mind-blowing. So a little bit daunting, of course, at first, walking out into the to the pool for your race and, and you know, mm. being 15 and trying to act and look and know what you're doing. But then, <laughs> you know, using the adrenaline and the rush of emotion to get, you know, through the race. It was it was a lot of fun and an incredible mm. memory.
0: Wow. And so you then competed in Athens and Beijing after that. How much did your training change in terms of the volume of training, the load of training over, those, over that period of time? Did the whole level of competition that, you know, the people that you were competing with, did that get harder or was it something that actually built to a certain point in time and then dropped off once you became much more proficient and more efficient at your strokes?
1: I think the biggest changes happened between 2000 and 2004. And in 2003, I had graduated high school and moved to Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado. And I had approached mm-hmm. the the team there and said, hey, I've, you know, I'd really like to swim. I I know you guys are not going to offer me a scholarship and that's fine, but I'd like to walk on to your program. Is that even possible? Here's Here's my resume. Here's what I've done. Um, and I, you know, I consider myself very blessed in that the coaches, John Mattos and Chris Woodard, took me on and said, you know, let's give it a shot and we'll see how it goes. And yep. in that first year, freshman year, I'm not going to lie, I got my butt kicked, <laughs> um, <laughs> both in, in in school, but also in the training, the workload, the focused training, the amount I'd never done doubles consistently. Mm-hmm. I would never had a consistent weight training program or dry land training program. And so in that, in my freshman year, I really saw huge gains in, in training and in my performances from, you know, 2003 into trials. I remember going into trials, which were in April of 04. And my coach mm-hmm. Woody, um, went with me and he, we kind of just said, let's, we have no idea what's going to happen, but let's see and see how this training's going. And, you know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: we'll, we'll just go with it. And I think my first race was the 200 IM, and I dropped something like 10 seconds, which is
0: Holy absolutely
1: insane. And you don't see those numbers that big of drops anymore. No. At least in my life. And then it was kind of that first swim that we said, oh, wow, we might be onto something here. <laughs> and so, I i mean, just because there's so many unknowns of how I'd never tapered with weights, I'd never tape, you know, done a full drop taper. There was a lot of mm-hmm. things that just because, you know, I loved my team greatly in Butte, but this was a whole nother level of training. And so it was a lot more focused specific yeah. to, you know, the strokes that I was doing or the races that I was competing at. And so I just saw tons and tons of time drop, which was really exciting to see. And I think, you know, part of that was building out my base uh, and my yeah. endurance, which then helped me, you know, train better overall, but carry through the long swim meets. You know, having that additional muscle mass, I probably put on a good twelve or fifteen pounds in wow. my freshman year. And it wasn't the freshman fifteen. It was, mm-hmm.
0: it, was the actual, it was muscle you know, mass.
1: Muscle mass and and it was really exciting to see you know, because I think there was a lot of unknowns for me going into that year mm-hmm. and then seeing, you know, the 200 IM and then going into the next event and dropping time. It was like, OK, we're on to something good and we're doing the right thing. Mm. And so that was a huge bonus for me going into Athens. And obviously in Athens, I had an incredible, incredible meet going seven for seven gold medals and. Mm. Um, After Athens, I went back to CSU and continued to train and and I just part of it I think was that the other girl we just had a women's team there but it was the other women that I was training with every day we had even though our goals were you know slightly different in that theirs was conference championships or NC two A's mine were you know world championship or Paralympic games and so. I was able to use their energy to motivate myself, and then you know they even said that I helped them out too. So it was really fun because I, I felt like mentally we're we're at the same level as well, which was really yeah. exciting, and we could push each other. And I could get a lot more in training from them, um, and yeah. so that's where I stayed for the rest of my career was at CSU. Uh
0: huh. And were you the only para athlete? There? Yes. So, all of then, your career, you were effectively the only para swimmer in the swim group that you were involved in?
1: Yeah, there was sometimes, like in, in the summer of 04 I came down to the Colorado Springs Olympic and Paralympic Training Center and trained <laughs> the summer with a group of other athletes that had made the Paralympic team. And then, being as close as I was to Colorado Springs, I was about two hours north of here. I did periodically come down and train with the resident group here to, based off of, mm-hmm. you know, if the the collegiate team had conference or other championship meets that they were attending. And mm-hmm. so, you know, there was some periods of time where, where it did change, but for the most part, I was with other able bodied swimmers. Mm.
0: And through that 04 period of time when, or o three o four, when when you had that big increase in your training, did you have any issues with injury? Because sometimes, you know, when you do a large increase in, in training load, frequency, volume, one of the risks is, is that of injury if it's not managed well. Did you have any issues with injury?
1: I was very fortunate in that I did not have any injuries. Prior mm. to going or moving to CSU, I did have quite a bit of tendonitis, bicep tendonitis, shoulder tendonitis, some what I would call minor overuse shoulder injuries, and yep. what we pretty much determined is that it was due to the imbalance in musculoskeletal structure that I had created mm. due to the lack of weightlifting and other training to help balance out my body. Um, yep. So I, I found that through that I mean don't get me wrong yes there were some injuries yes there were some this and that but in terms of sustained injuries I didn't have any which was
0: Mm. awesome yeah sounds like you were really well managed what about from a nutrition perspective was that something that you were aware of much that you got much education about in those early days or at what point did that start to happen
1: in all honesty, I I was a typical college student. Uh, <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. even before that, when I was in high school and living at home, thankfully, I had a great family that we, we didn't have crazy meals, but I ate a lot of spaghetti. That was my go-to. <laughs> I, I would say, and I my mom would back me up on this, that I had a pretty balanced diet in terms of getting mm-hmm. lots of vegetables and, and different nutrition. In the same aspect, I did not have any nutrition education other than, you know, you should eat a you should carbo load before a big meat and you should (laughs) eat lots of spaghetti and, you know, all of that. So I I really didn't have a lot of education on that. I kind of went with what my body craved or needed or felt like Mm -hmm. Uh, for me, that was a lot of spaghetti. And enough not fancy mm-hmm. spaghetti but but pretty pretty plain meat sauce and, and noodles mm-hmm. throughout college, you know I did my best of cooking, but it really wasn't until almost going into 2008 or towards the end of my career where we started to get some information presented to us as athletes and national team athletes where it was more directed as to here's mm-hmm. where we should be eating or here's where we should be looking at. And it's not just all about eating bowls of spaghetti.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Damn it. (laughs) (laughs) What was the highlight, do you think, of your career as a swimmer? Ooh, that's a tough one.
1: I'm going to, I kind of have two. And one Mm -hmm. would be obviously the Athens Games and the, you know, competing in seven events, winning seven gold medals. There's a few world records thrown into there. You know, the highlight there was the final night winning the seventh gold medal on the relay with my teammates and Mm. being able to close out that game, you know, standing atop the podium with my three other teammates was still one of the best memories of my life. Just one and how much change had gone into that year, how much work had gone in, but also the, you know, the payoffs and the rewards. And that's where I, I saw it all come to fruition I think mm-hmm. the other highlight was more towards the end of my career and that when I ended swimming, I felt like I had given it everything that I could possibly give mm-hmm. and I felt like I had nothing left to give. Yep. Part of that was that others were coming in and, the, you know, yes, I was getting beat and, and that was, to- well, defeating, but it was also exciting to see because, you know, I had two other competitors within my classification that were beating me now so I knew that mm. the you know the pipeline within our classification was deep and now it was time to move on to new adventures and so being able to see it from when I first started and being you know bright-eyed and oogling at everything <sighs> that was happening to then being able to take a more worldly view of everything that one, I had accomplished, but also how much the sport had progressed and where I yeah. was moving on from it was was definitely a highlight.
0: Mm. And it's a great segue because the next series of questions that I wanted to ask is is about that transition, you know, transitioning from being an athlete. What was your first role that you took on? Because by this stage you'd graduated from your degree.
1: Yes. So when I I graduated in fall of 2007, going into Beijing, Mm -hmm. so I I took the year to just focus solely on Beijing. And then after Beijing was done, I definitely had that moment of, am I ready to retire? Or do I want to keep competing? I have no idea what I'm doing with my life. Um, (laughs) And so I was in the midst of trying to apply to grad schools and, and all of that, and At that point in time, our world championships were only offered in the year in between the games, so it wouldn't be until 2010. So I I finally came to terms with, I'm going to continue to take more courses. I'm going to, Mm -hmm. you know, further pursue maybe an additional degree or a master's degree and and keep those options open. But I also wanted to end on a a high note. So I decided to train until 2010 and end at world championships. Following world championships... You know, I hate to say it, but I had that same moment of, oh, my gosh, what am I what am I doing? <laughs> um, I was I was mentally, very mentally done with swimming and physically done with swimming. Yeah. But the plans that I had kind of in place fell through. And so it was time to pivot. And so I got home from World Championships, had to move out of my apartment that week. And mm. due to some life changes, I decided, you know what? why don't I move home for a little bit? And so I drove home to Montana and worked out of my dad's office. He's a physician. Mm-hmm. And I had worked at his office when I was in high school doing go for work, um, but decided, <laughs> you know, maybe this is something that I could pursue more. And so I helped him run his, the drug studies that he did and some medical records and charting and all of that stuff. And, Mm -hmm. you know, in that time, grateful to kind of have that place to go home, live at home for a while, try and figure life out. And in that year, I also figured out that I don't want to live at home for the rest of my life. And I don't want (laughs) to work in, you know, a medical office doing billing and, you know, some drug studies and and other stuff. So um, Mm -hmm. I believe it was Spring of 2011, I was talking to some former teammates and and colleagues and coaches, and they kind of said, Hey, what are you doing? And kind of said that I'm looking for new work. (laughs) And so (laughs) that work got around, and and Julie Deslier reached out saying, Hey, we have a a position that's opening at the USOC at that time, now USOPC. Would you be interested? It's a classification coordinator role. Um, And so I, I honestly, took it as a this this will get me out of living with mom and dad and into a, a new working world, and I'll see and give it a shot so so I kind of transitioned and then here I am twelve and a half years later, and still with the organization, my roles have switched around a bit but
0: yeah we'll we'll cover that, but I'm really interested in terms of going from being a recently retired athlete who had experienced classification in a very specific paradigm in terms of your impairment and your sport to managing classification for US Paralympics and having to understand how classification worked across a wide range of sports and in an in an environment where there were you know classification itself was still young and growing as a as a discipline or as a as an aspect of para sport, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, it was. It was a very eye opening experience starting off in classification. You know, I, I'd be naive to say that class this para swimming classification system is an incredibly complex system, and so I, I felt mm-hmm. like I had a good understanding of classification within swimming. However, you know, we have twenty six sports across para sports and so mm. i i remember my first task was to locate all of the classification manuals for every international federation figure out the the rules and regulations figure out where their master lists were figure out the basic what should be the backbone of each sport's classification system and in the first week i could only find you know maybe a handful of those on mm on the internet and so Mm. that started me reaching out to the international federation saying you know can i get a copy of your classification manual can i get where's your master list and i got you know for the most part you know sometimes they'd say oh it's you know on this website or it's located here which for a lot of them they were not readily available Mm. or you had to really dig through their websites to find them but there was also some of no we don't publish our our classification manuals or we don't publish any classification information and so we cannot give that to you and that was pretty eye-opening because you go how is how are athletes supposed to be able to understand what is what they're being evaluated on or how I can compare this athlete to that athlete or what the system is if there's no information out there for for the public or for people to know it felt like If you're in the system, you know the system. But if you're not in the system, then then you you, you can't
0: find out the information that you need.
1: Right, and and we all know that when the information is not readily available, then or transparent, then that starts raising a lot of questions of Mm. well, how is this done, or what does this mean? And so the other part was that you know I had to with the the class IPC classification code had recently been signed into effect. And so part of that mandated that all of that information be public knowledge. But it mm-hmm. also said that the, you know, each NPC is responsible for developing their roles, responsibilities, policies, and procedures nationally. And so that was another one of my big tasks early on was to develop that for each sport. And some of our sports within the U.S. are integrated within the Olympic counterpart. Um, mm. Others are standalone. And then we have others that are under the USOPC umbrella. So we we kind of took it as a project of of starting or providing a template. Um, some sports said, yep, you guys develop it. We'll, we'll add it in and, and go from there. Others, you know, had their own systems. And so that was really the first time that the IPC had dictated that you no, know, all of the sports need to kind of fall in line with policies and procedures and and have more or less their ducks in a row so that, mm-hmm. you know, it's not apples and oranges amongst all the sports for simple policies and procedures. And that was a big undertaking because for a wow. long time sport had been run by people who truly loved the sport and were in it for, you know, the good nature. But they had run it for 20 years, right? And so now we're yeah. trying to move it into the next level and the next generations. And and with that came a lot of work to get those towards to that level.
0: Yeah. Wow. So it was the inundation of fire, it sounds like, for you.
1: <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, drinking from a fire hose, right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> and so do you think that there's, and I mean, you know, Classification is a, is a hot topic to talk about at the best of times, but you've probably seen over that period of time now quite a lot of change in terms of the progression of, of classification, the tightening of the regulations and, and shifts and changes. Do you feel like there's still a ways to go with that or do you feel like it's actually starting to come really together now? Well, that's a loaded question, Liz. <laughs> <laughs> you can pass on it. I can always take that question out.
1: <laughs> I think with any system, there's always a continual evolution of the system that needs to happen because mm-hmm. uh, classification, impairments, medicine, natural disasters, all, all of these things play an in effect into the impairments that we see within the Paralympic Games. And so mm-hmm. with that said, I think the the evolution of sport, the evolution of of life really, will continue to impact how the classification systems continue to move. And so
0: mm-hmm.
1: it, it's an ever-evolving process. I think there's been a lot of positive change within the classification system. One in that the information is a lot more readily available, classification yep. manuals and information and, and they're trying to destigmatize. What classification is so that the greater public, along with you know its membership, understand what classification is and what the different impairments are. They're putting a lot more research behind it, so it's not just these athletes look similar, so we're going to group them together, but it's more research-backed or evidence-based back, so that Mm -hmm. there's you know data behind why we're making changes and why we're seeing shifts in, in classifications. You know, and the other part is is that medicine is continually advancing, so impairments or, you know, we have, unfortunately, accidents and injuries happen in life. Mm. And what could have been a life-altering injury even 10 years ago or 20 years ago is now, through the advancements in medicine, able to be, you know, modified or repaired at a quicker pace, which then eliminates the risk of permanent injury or increased injuries and so mm-hmm. you know we're we're seeing changes in that and what athletes can do and come back from and so some of that yeah. where we you know 20 years ago we would have seen a, a spinal cord injury never you know walking again or an incomplete spinal cord injury you know being pretty paralyzed now we're seeing that no they're actually through through advancements in medicine and rehab and all of that that they're able to Gain function back if if it's done in a in the right period of time and stuff yeah. like that. So, so it's really a, a difficult process. Mm. And there's a lot of work being done behind it though to try and get it as as accurate as possible. But it will always be a difficult, yeah, a difficult. Uh, and there'll always be a
0: yeah. There'll always be a range as well. Like you can't. I mean, if you look at swimming, there's what. 14 different classes in swimming. 14, yeah. And so there's, by nature of that, there still has to be a, a, a range within each class where you may find an individual within that class who's at the top of the range and you might find another one that's at the bottom of the range. And yes, there may seem to be some discrepancy in their capability, but you have to make some cutoffs at some point because it's not like you can have... There's already enough races and enough events and, and enough complexity in it that you can't have a hundred different classifications in a sport like swimming, for example.
1: Exactly. And, you know, the classification systems in a way are the same as how we would look at a weight class within weightlifting or boxing mm-hmm. or, you know, even age groups within youth sports of there mm-hmm. are athletes that are younger, or older at the bottom of a weight class or at the top of a weight class. That they're going to be disadvantaged and, and advantaged. And, and just like on our Olympic counterpart side, not everybody makes it to the top of sport or makes it mm. to the Olympic Games. Same with Paralympics is that not everybody makes it to the Paralympic Games just because you have a disability, but it really is the elite of the elite.
0: Yeah. And that doesn't mean that there's not opportunities for those individuals to be able to compete in sport and to participate in sport. In fact, how much have you seen that change, particularly in the US over the since the late 90s, where you hadn't really heard as a youngster of, of para sport to this day and age? How much of a shift and change have you seen in the general population in terms of their understanding of what para sport is and and how much more available are opportunities for individuals with an impairment to participate in sport?
1: In my opinion, it's changed dramatically.
0: When I was a youngster, mm-hmm. I had no idea that there were the Paralympic
1: Games and I got involved right after we had hosted the 1996 Paralympic Games in Atlanta. Um, <laughs> it was something that I had never heard about here in the United States. And by good luck, I was able to get involved and you know met the right people who, you know, pushed me and, you know, to get involved and, and kind of take it and see where it could go. You know, I never remember seeing anybody with a disability on TV or, or Mm -hmm. really featured in commercials or or let alone competing on collegiate teams. And now we have a a ton of different adaptive sports teams in all, on pretty much every city within the U.S., um, mm-hmm. The major, inter- or the, you know, the big cities have multiple teams, which is incredibly exciting to see. We have athletes that are able to get Division One scholarships and mm. D one and D D two and D three, and participate at the collegiate level. We have athletes being featured on major marketing campaigns and in Super Bowl commercials and in mainstream mm-hmm. media, and and so the benefit of that is when you see people that look like you or have a same, similar impairment that you say, wow, I look like that, or I could do that. And so getting it more into the, the public, number one destigmatizes what a disability is and that we're not in fact as limited as what everything says we should be, but also what can we accomplish and what are the opportunities out there? And so through that We've seen a large uptick in the number of athletes and the, the number of people that are going. Hey, I I saw that we have an event in our area, and mm. I have an a, an impairment, so I want to get more involved. And how do I do this? And so it's been really beneficial too to be able to say, Hey, there's these local clubs in your area for you know various sports, or here's there's local swim teams in your area, and you can join a swim team, and you know there's no mm. need for a specific disability swim team, it's go enjoy and, and be with your peers. And so that's mm. really helped a lot in in the promotion. And obviously we've got LA coming up in five short years or four and a half short <laughs> years. Um, and so, you know, one of the benefits with that is that I, I hope we'll continue to see an increase in the public awareness of mm. what an athlete is. And then an athlete comes in all different shapes you know, yeah. you, you look at an Olympic weightlifter and an Olympic gymnast, and those are two different body types. You look yeah. at para-athletes and you have, you know, swimmers and track and field athletes and, and wheelchair basketball players, and everybody looks different. But it, it doesn't mean that you're not capable of, of participating and reaching different levels of that sport. So it's been mm. really exciting to see it shift. Of course, it's never as fast as what we want it to be. Yeah. But we can see the positive change that's happening.
0: Yeah. And as director of para-swimming in the US, are you seeing the other side of that in that the number of athletes you have on a team is, is that larger than it used to be when you were a competitor? Are there more people coming through that pipeline and and creating a lot of pressure, upward pressure, in terms of the whole level of performance is increasing simply because there's more people who are getting better and better at what they do?
1: Definitely. We're definitely seeing an increase in the number of athletes that are participating, specifically with, in swimming. The great mm-hmm. thing with swimming is that there's pretty much a, a swim club almost in every community within the US, as long as there's a pool. Yep. And so, one thing that we promote is, is getting involved with your local swim team so that you can get the base of what the sport is, right? Yeah. Beyond that, then we're getting a lot of athletes and specifically a lot of coaches that are reaching mm. out saying, hey, I've had this athlete on my team for you know a few years now and they have this impairment and I've just always included them in our, integrated them in with our normal team. And I just found out about para swimming and, and the opportunities that are they could have. So we'd like to find out more information and get them involved. Unfortunately, due to injuries that happen, you know, sometimes we have young children that get involved pretty early or or sometimes we have athletes that get involved later in life due to an injury sustained. And it's really exciting to see because there's so much more information readily available to athletes and coaches and teams that there's not the delay in getting active or becoming involved. It's more, hey, this athlete just approached me. What do I need to know? How can I get involved? How can I make sure mm. that we steer them in the right direction? And so that's really helping us out a lot as well. And we've had quite a few athletes that have been on our national team for a while. And, you know, that we've got a lot of young swimmers, some young in age, some young in experience that are moving up mm. the pipeline really quickly. And and that's exciting to see because, you know, like every sport, we want new athletes to come in and we want athletes to be tested.
0: Yep. And you talked about the coaches just then in terms of like when you started and and particularly when you transitioned to the university setting being the only athlete with an in- impairment how many coaches do you think at that stage really had had much exposure to para sport compared to and now how many like when you're trying to choose a a team of staff to go with a team. Do you have a lot more options available to you now? We definitely
1: do. With that being said, there are a ton of coaches out there and our all of our team is spread out across the US. So we don't really we have a few areas where our national team athletes are kind of hubbed at. But for the most part, Mm -hmm. our athletes live all across the US. So so with that we've been able to engage a lot more coaches. One of the big things that we've added into our program this year is a para swimming coach education. And that's not designed Mm. to teach coaches how to coach by any means, but it's added what are the nuances of para swimming? What are the Mm. differences in how we train athletes with different impairments? Mm. But expanding their knowledge, expanding their information on the world of paralympic swimming so that regardless of if they're currently coaching an athlete with a disability. Or if, you know, in two years, an athlete comes across their pool deck and wants to swim, that they have more information to be able to step in and guide that athlete where they need to go or how they advance. Because swimming is still not the easiest in terms of the classification and which events qualify and all of that. Mm -hmm. But trying to provide more people with the information will help the initial steps of, of getting athletes involved. And so trying to provide education and opportunities for four different coaches to get experience so that they have the knowledge. And most of them have the knowledge. It's more
0: just expanding on that. Yep. And what do you see happening from a, you know, this is a power sports nutrition podcast. So, you know, from a service provision, do you have athletes who seem to be able to access sports nutrition, sports psychology, any of those support services, is is that something that seems to be also increasing throughout the US in your experience? Well, Liz, I had
1: the great pleasure of working with you for, <laughs> for a number of years. So you really expanded my knowledge of the impacts of nutrition and dietetics, as well as the overall high performance structure of what sport can be. Mm-hmm. We've seen a huge increase in the amount of support for our athletes in terms of nutrition, in terms of strength and conditioning, physiology. And, and it's not just getting blood work and looking at what we're eating, but it's more of a holistic approach to that so that we're creating a better mm-hmm. athlete overall. And so we've been able to partner with our dietitians not only on education, but really identifying and getting more in depth with individual athletes to identify early on if there are any imbalances uh, in nutrition or Mm -hmm. areas that we may not be aware of because, well, let's be honest, a lot of our athletes have sustained either pretty significant injuries or have disabilities where we've had to overcome a lot through life or we've just managed Mm. to get through life the way we know how to best. And so we don't always think about things that maybe actually are impacting to how we perform sport until we take a deeper dive into the individual Mm. athlete. And so with some more individualized attention and focus, we've been able to really advance how we work with our athletes. And it's been really exciting to see through through the work that you started back when Mm. you first started with us in 2014. Um, or maybe even 2013, 2013, (laughs) 2013, but it's been really exciting to see how we're able to identify areas of the athlete physiologically or training wise, but also tie those things in where we're having the conversations with a dietitian and a coach to say, okay, they're feeling run down, or they're not really Mm -hmm. able to maintain the level of training that they should be is there anything physiologically that's going on? Okay, well, we've noticed that their diet is a little bit off or their blood work shows some imbalances here. So let's focus on getting that and then let's come back Mm -hmm. and see how they're training. And so there's really been an increased collaborative effort amongst the whole high-performance team to get these athletes to the best possible Mm -hmm. shape, form that they can be at. And that's been really exciting to see. And even from some of our strength and condition coaches popping onto the pool deck to say, Oh wow. Okay. They're doing this or, you know, Hey, how have they been in the weight room? Because I've noticed that they're, you know, they said that they're a little bit more sore right now. You know, are you guys changing the weight program? Yeah. We've actually increased the load due to this or that. And so it's really been exciting to see kind of the whole picture come together Mm. and the opportunities that athletes have to utilize all these different areas. And I think it's one of those that we're continuing to advance, we're continuing to find more education and resources and put it into areas that
0: are easy to digest. <laughs>
1: Here's mm-hmm. my nutrition.
0: Pun. <laughs> um, Pardon the pun. <laughs> <but> easy, at,
1: <laughs> easy at all levels, right? Because, you know, some, yeah. some athletes are very keen and very detailed as to how many carbs and how much protein and All of those areas that they ingest within a day. Others say, "Hey, I had you know a large bowl of pasta and had some water." Okay, cool. You know, Mm. so how do we how do we put it into terms? Also, that you know we're not having to do a science project every time we eat a meal. Yeah, but it's been really exciting to see and then bringing in our physiologists to do different testing. Bringing in a huge area that we've expanded on is our mental health services, both. Mm -hmm. And that encompasses the sports psych side, as well as the mental health. And we've really seen a large number of athletes take advantage of that. And it's been exciting to see how some of the shifts have happened. The athlete is not just a a physical athlete. It's, It's physical, it's mental. Everything plays into their athletic performance. And so I feel like we're getting to a better point of creating a holistic athlete and focusing on the well-being of the athlete, mm. while also, of course, focusing on performance too. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. Performance is always the backbone, but yeah, the athlete is more than just what you see in the pool on race day.
1: Exactly. You know yep. and when we have all of the pieces to come together, then the performance naturally happens, and that's when it's yep. So it's really fun to see.
0: Awesome. And you've also done some skylarking with Nordic ski at the Winter Paralympic Games and with cycling as their performance support coordinator. so you've you've kind of been able to sort of see a good spectrum of other sports as well. I guess what do you see in those sports that are a little bit different than swimming? Do you think that there's big differences now between sports or do you think there's a lot of everybody's moving in a similar direction and, yes, they have their own sport-specific nuances, but everybody's kind of getting the benefit of that wider perspective?
1: Yeah, every every sport has its own nuances with both Nordic and cycling. They're a lot more endurance-based sports and, and not to say that swimming isn't, but in terms of how we compete there, mm-hmm. There's a lot of other factors that those sports have to take into account that can impact athletic performance, such as environmental factors. You know, the pool, uh, an aquatic center is predominantly pretty consistent in temperature, in water mm-hmm. temperature and ambient temperature, as opposed to cycling and Nordic skiing, where where the environment can have a huge impact on. The performance, whether it's freezing cold out or the wind picks up mm. or the length of the course that the athlete has to compete on. And so I think that those are some of the things that make each sport individualized in how we address different areas. For the most part, you know, the longest swim race that we have within para swimming is the 400 meter, which typically lasts for our middle classifications under six minutes. Um, mm. And so trying to figure out how we can best optimize that performance, but also while we may be in a pool, external stimuli is often a lot bigger because we're in an enclosed area, so the noise is a lot higher, the The mm. temperature can get quite warm, but also we have a 10-day competition at the Paralympic Games. so So mm. there's a lot of different factors that make each sport a little bit different. At the same time, I think we're all trying to learn from each other. What are the wins that yep. we've had? What are the oh no's? And what's <laughs> But I think, you know, we're all looking into what is going to create the best outcome and performance so that when that athlete gets onto the field of play, they know that they've done everything possible that they could to have yep. their best athletic performance. So it, it's exciting to see and it's very different within each athlete too. You know, some athletes are very regimented in how they proceed through a competition. And then there's other athletes that are laid back and free spirited and let's, you know, let's go. And so I think Mm. within each sport, it's very individualized into how we create optimal opportunities for success.
0: Yep. Yeah. I guess the other big difference is how much equipment goes with them so from a management perspective just the logistics of of a cycling team arriving at an airport or even departing from an airport and how you get all of their gear and their and you know the different impairments through that airport setting and you know swimmers travel with what a, a pair of goggles a swimsuit maybe a spare swimsuit And maybe a little bit of pool deck stuff like a pair of flippers and a pool boy. It's pretty easy to manage. But cycling and Nordic ski is a whole different kettle of fish, isn't it? You know,
1: I have to say I do not miss all the equipment. (laughs) You know, I will say that swimmers, you know, they do bring more than a suit, cap and goggles. However, it's <laughs> it's not all of the equipment that the Nordic or cycling teams have. And, you know, it's impressive. And I think back to how much equipment was, you know, we move around the world and, and how logistically tricky <laughs> those movements are at the same time. You know, you, you watch how the staff of each of those sports operate. And it's really exciting to just see how fluid they can make it and how we're moving. I think the most, I think I checked in like 20-some pieces of equipment one time flying over to Europe. And it was myself and one other staff, and we had to get, and they had another 15 or so pieces. And, you know, it was just the two of us traveling to, I think, Amsterdam or so and and moving all of that equipment through the Mm. airport on our own. But, you know, it's also a testament to... Do all the work that the staff does behind the scenes to make sure that the athletes have the best equipment on the field of play, the, the, the best tires, the best bikes, skis, all of that. And it's it's really cool to see how all of that comes together.
0: Yeah, and and how they make it look seamless, even though it's like a duck on 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 water. That you know, the duck looks like it's it's just cruising, but down underneath there's little legs going hell for leather while there's you know problem solving on the fly. But you're the master of doing that. Exactly. So, um,
1: <laughs> exactly. But, you know, we we had a lot of fun. We we had laughs, mm. not always at the time, but after. <laughs> um, but no, it was it's really cool to see. And, and swimmers have their own equipment, but not nearly to
0: the level of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, my lovely Poe, we have taken up a lot of your time, and I'm aware that you're a very busy lady. So I'm going to. Let us finish off with just a couple of final questions. This one might be a bit of a tricky one, but what do you see as the future for Paralympic sport? What do you see coming up in the, in the next 10 years?
1: Yeah, you're full of the loaded questions. <laughs> I think we're going to be, begin to see worldwide not only the acceptance but the equality of parasport to the Olympic sport. There's a Mm -hmm. lot of push out there to bring athletic performance to the forefront and Mm -hmm. let's focus on what athletes can do and what they can achieve as opposed to focusing on what we can't do. And so with that, I think Paris next year has an incredible opportunity to bring Paris sport to to the main stage, as well as I'm really excited for the opportunity that LA will have in 2028 because it's within the US. And we've seen Hmm. an increased trend post games, and even in the lead up to a Paralympic Games of disability awareness, inclusion, opportunities for advancement. That's not only in the world of sports, but it's in the workplace, in how we view others with disabilities. So I think we'll continue to see those opportunities of the impact that parasport can have, not within just sport, but within the world
0: yep cool that'll be super exciting now the last question is always what's your favorite food you
1: know I'm a swimmer and I just love food I wish that had stopped (laughs) once I stopped competing but I still I've said it multiple times on this podcast I love spaghetti I love spaghetti (laughs) it's It's still a favorite hominess it makes me feel comfortable it you know, it's that go-to that I know I can can make at any time. But I will say my new favorite is chocolate peanut butter chocolate chip ice cream. Can't get better than
0: that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Not at the okay, same time. So anyways.
0: a good, no, I was going to say a good plate of pasta, spaghetti followed up with some chocolate peanut butter chocolate chip ice cream.
1: Yep. <laughs> and now I s- sound gluttonous.
0: <laughs> now you sound hungry actually <laughs> might be getting up to dinner time well Poe, thank you so much for your time your insight your passion your commitment to para sport over the years uh, we haven't even touched on the work that you do with the ipc there's so many components of what you do within your job and also Within the perspective of para sport itself, and will leave a massive legacy behind you. So, we look forward to seeing more exciting things coming from US para swimming, but also to continue watching your journey through. You're still such a baby. You've got so much more that you can you can contribute. So we're looking forward to to seeing that. But thank you so much for your time, Liz. You're an absolute
1: legend both in the sport, in the world of dietitian, but also in my world. So I'm honoured to be on your podcast. Thank you for having me. I'll look forward to continued discussions and mentorship from you. But thank you, thank you, thank you. You're amazing.
0: Erin's experience across a wide range of roles within Parasport, I think, has given her a really unique perspective on what she sees for the current day and the future of para-sport. And I think it's exciting to hear from her because sometimes I think we get bogged down in some of the detail and forget to look at the big picture. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you like to share it with your friends, please do so. Please join us next time when we talk to Steve Reed, who is a medical doctor working with para-athletes in Australia we talked to him about some of the more specific medical issues that para-athletes may face.